In the Old Testament, God chose the people of Israel to be his special people. Right, so this is a quick little crash course here about just the overarching narrative of, of Scripture, particularly the Old Testament. And even though he showed grace and mercy and love and kindness to the people of Israel, they continuously rebelled against him. And he told them, if you continue to do this, I'm going to send you into exile. I'm going to take you from your homeland, from the city of Jerusalem, and I'm going to cast you out. And they didn't listen. And eventually, God sent them into exile for 70 years, the people of Judah. And he didn't abandon them, though. He didn't just send them away and leave them. He said, no, I will restore you. I will bring you back. But you have this lesson that you need to learn. So for 70 years, imagine that, 70 years, a significant amount of time, generations were born into exile, and they weren't there in Jerusalem. But God did not abandon them. We look at the book of Nehemiah, and we also look at the book of Ezra, the one that comes right before Nehemiah. And they're about God restoring his people spiritually and then also physically, as we're seeing in Nehemiah, with the rebuilding of the city. And in the book of Nehemiah, God gives Nehemiah a special burden. This is a a special burden. It's this ambition that he has that comes from God to rebuild the walls around this destroyed city of Jerusalem. And as we roll into chapters 3 and 4, the trowels are now in hand. They are putting the stones back into place, and they are building the wall itself. And to be clear, these chapters can be a little bit confusing. If you just read through them, maybe you did that uh, in preparation of this morning. There's numerous names, places. He talks about different gates around the city, the fish gate, the dung gate. I don't want to go to that gate. doesn't sound like it would be very pleasant. Um, but there's all kinds of stuff, and, and it's kind of like this weird gene- genealogical slash geographical lesson in all of these names. And honestly, it's very tempting to skip over parts of that in the Bible because they're long, weird names, and we don't know how to pronounce them. And, but, but when we do that, we kind of short-circuit maybe what God might want to teach us through that, because there can be significant things to learn. And so as Ken already said, uh, you know, the, the, this, this uh, passage of Scripture was, uh, you know, kind of difficult. And so, so I was like, sure, I'll take it as long as I can also have chapter four, all right? So we're going to see what God has for us there. But uh, why should we consider these chapters today? That's, that's the main question. Why even consider what God has here? I mean, what's the key to understanding passages like chapter three? I don't know if you guys remember or not. I grew up in church. And so back in the 90s, <laughs> I remember um, this, uh, this weird book called The Bible Code. Does anybody remember this fad? It, it was this idea, this, this weird thing about how you can look at the, the text of Scripture, but you don't read it from left to right. You read it from top to bottom, and you make all these different letters fit. And it's, it was this system that was totally bunk, by the way. <laughs> it was not okay. Uh, it, was, it was this totally made-up thing of how to read the Bible, right? Like we're looking like it's the Da Vinci Code or something weird like that. Listen, we don't need some hidden code system to understand what God wants us to, to know in His Word, what He wants to teach us. 
You don't have to have some magic decoder ring, <laughs> as cool as that would be from Ovaltine or whatever it might be, or from your box of tricks. Uh, you don't have to have that. You can understand Scripture, particularly in light of the Holy Spirit teaching you. And so I think the best way to understand the chapters we're going to tackle today is to understand why the wall around Jerusalem is so important. Why was there this ambition to rebuild the wall around the city? Why does it matter? And more particularly, what does it have to do with us? Why does it concern us today, like why they rebuilt that wall then? Is this for, is this for America? Should we go and build a wall I know I'm starting to sound like CNN or Fox News right now, but, you know, it's not that. I mean, let, let me answer that for you. Is, is this, is this a, a biblical idea? Are we seeing scriptural evidence here for why we should build a wall and, and keep people out? The answer is a big fat no. That's not what this is saying, regardless of some commentators and other pastors and theologians that I've seen their take on this. It's not anything to do with American border security or refugee policy. In fact, the wall in the book of Nehemiah is not about America at all. It's about the people of Israel. It is about the kingdom of God. And more specifically, it's about God's faithfulness, how God is faithful to his people and to his promise to establish his worldwide kingdom through the people of Israel. Even though they were sinful and rebelled and in exile, God said, no, I made this promise to you and I'm going to, I'm going to establish this kingdom around the world for my glory. And so that's what the whole book of Nehemiah is focused on. It's focused on God's faithfulness to his covenant, to his people, to this promise between his people. And in these chapters, Nehemiah and the people of Israel have a mission. They want to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. It had been destroyed, and they wanted to see it rebuilt. But their desire to rebuild the wall is not a simple desire to keep people out or keep people safe inside the city. Rather, it's a desire to return to the covenant-keeping God. They want to return to the to their God, to the city of God, and they want to be faithful to him. They want to work in his kingdom rather than against his kingdom. They want to be restored. And the wall shows something about God as well. It shows that God still intends to keep his covenants with his people because he's faithful. He is still with them. The wall represents the fact that God is still working. Even in light of their shortcomings, he is still working to accomplish his purpose. And let's be honest, even today as God's people, through Jesus and what he has done for us, we have been unfaithful. All of us have been unfaithful at some point, but God has remained faithful. He has been the one to be faithful. We might have abandoned the covenant, but he has and will continue to keep his promises. So listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to realize that God did keep his covenant with the people of Israel. We're living proof of that today. It came to its fulfillment in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's where he kept that promise. And now in Christ, you and I are graciously invited 
into the covenant people of God. We were once foreigners and outsiders, as the Apostle Paul said. We were without hope in the world. But praise God, Jesus came into the world and he is our hope. And we are commissioned now as a part of his people to press forward the kingdom of God. And so Nehemiah's desire was to see God advance his kingdom through his people. And that for them meant rebuilding the wall. All right, that's what their mission was. Our desire is to see God advance his kingdom through his covenant people today. And that means we get to participate in it, right? We don't build walls or temples or, or, or any of that to advance his kingdom. That's not what we're called to do. Instead, we invite all people to know this faithful God through Jesus Christ. That is our mission. Our kingdom commission, in all that we say and in all that we do, we point people to Jesus. So the wall is about God's faithfulness, and it's about the people of God and Israel and that day trying to do what God had called them to do to be faithful to his calling. So what I want to do is I want to look at three things out of the text today from these two chapters uh, that we need to consider. If we want to be faithful to God's kingdom work, right, we must press forward— it's the first thing we're going to see. The second thing is that when we begin to press forward, the enemy will push back. That is a given. That's why thirdly, we'll see that we must persevere. So press forward, push back, persevere. Three easy ways to remember it. So let's look at this first one here, the, the idea of pressing forward the kingdom. So look at, at uh, chapter 3. Chapter 3 is organized geographically. Like I already mentioned, it worked its way around the edge of Jerusalem, showing how the wall was built from gate to gate. And you'll notice when you read, there are seven gates mentioned in the text, seven gates around the city of Jerusalem. And between each gate, people worked on their section of the wall. All right, they, they had their, their part that they were going to take care of, and so they rebuilt that way. And without going through each verse, I want to point out five things as you go through the, the, the entirety of chapter 3 about pressing forward the kingdom. Let's look at, at three things, or a, a few things here real quick. Number one, pressing forward requires work. I mean, that's what we see them doing there. When you read through the names of chapter 3, you're going to notice that people were there from all walks of life, and they were doing their part. They were putting in the work. You'll read about merchants, about rulers, daughters, temple servants, guards, priests, bachelors. They were all there getting their hands dirty with trowel in hand, rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. This isn't something that was just going to magically happen. God said, no, you have to put in the work. Yes, God is in control of all things, but he still calls us to put in the work. We are to, to be down in the trenches doing the work of ministry. So pressing forward requires work. Secondly, kingdom work is hard work. This isn't easy, and it's not just for the elite few either, as we see here. It's for the everyday person. It's for all of us to do. We all do the work of ministry. And so many times churches, I feel like, get this wrong. Maybe not so much here at Mount Healthy, but other churches I've been a part of, other churches that I've served and, and helped along the way in my, my time in vocational ministry, there is this false belief 
that the pastors and the preachers are the ones that are called to do the ministry. That's what we pay them for, right? I've literally had somebody say that before to me. Not here, but elsewhere. Uh, it's what we pay the preacher for so that he'll do what he's supposed to do. No, that's not exactly true. All of God's people, every single one of us, no matter how old you are, how young you are, how able-bodied you feel that you are, all of us are called to the work of ministry. And that's what the Apostle Paul explicitly states in the New Testament. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 states that, and he himself, that's, that's God, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. That's what vocational ministers are called to do, to equip you to go out and do the work of ministry. And I praise God here at Mount Healthy, we see that happening. We see you all out there at the, the food pantry. We see you out there knocking on doors and sharing Christ with people and, and serving uh, the least of these in the city. It's building up the body of Christ. So friends, if we desire to see the kingdom of God press forward, we have to realize we have to engage in the work. You have to be a part of the work, period. We don't come to church to only study the Word, listen to sermons, and check off those boxes on our Sunday list. Listen, we come here to be equipped to do the work of ministry. That's why you are here on a Sunday morning. You're here, yes, to be rejuvenated, to be encouraged, right, to be fed, but also to be equipped to do the work of ministry. Jesus commissioned us as his disciples to make other disciples, not play church. That's what he called us to do. Pressing forward the kingdom requires work. So will you join in that work today? That's, that's the question to ponder. So we also see that pressing forward requires unity. It's another thing we see. Chapter 3 paints a picture of people working together in harmony. They are doing this thing together. They're not pulling in opposite directions. They are working together. And now when we get to chapter 5, we're going to see some disunity creep into the picture. That's where uh, Pastor Ken will pick up uh, next week. But in chapter 3, they're unified. They're on the same sheet of music, right? Uh, they're all playing in harmony together. Everyone has their lane. They know their job. They're going to stick to it, and they do what is required of them. So listen, pressing forward the kingdom requires working together, sometimes with people that might press your buttons the wrong way, sometimes with people who do things completely opposite of how you would do them, <laughs> because God is growing us in sanctification, right? He is equipping us to work together. So we see it requires unity. We see that pressing forward requires wisdom, right? Uh, there's an organization to this effort. They are not doubling back. They're not scrambling around. They're not just throwing their hands up in the air saying, I don't know what we're doing. Nobody gave me the notes on this. Nobody gave me the PowerPoint presentation. They're not doing any of that. They're working efficiently. They're working wisely because Nehemiah, remembered, prayed twice as long as it took him to rebuild the walls. Nehemiah had the vision. He had it hammered out, and he shared it with the other leaders, and they began to implement this. So they have developed this plan, implemented a strategy. They have been critically thinking about things, and they are sticking to it. Fourthly, we see pressing forward requires sacrifice, right? In a couple of instances in chapter 3, you see that people are building multiple sections of the wall. 
They didn't say, hey, this is a union job. I'm only doing from point A to point B. They're saying, I'm going to chip in. I'm going to help C to D and E to F and all the way around if I have to, because this is what we are supposed to do. And so they're not only covering their part across from their homes, they're also jumping in to help their neighbors, to help the brothers and sisters there in the city. So friends, listen, laboring for the kingdom is not a cheap thing. It's not an easy thing. It often requires sacrifice, sacrifice of your time, sacrifice of your talent, your energy, your emotions. These are things that we bring to the table and we say, listen, I will sacrifice these things to do what God has called me to do. Serving the hurting and broken, standing for truth and justice and being the hands and feet of Jesus is a costly thing. And we must count that cost, but it is incredibly worth it as you serve God in the work of ministry. And then finally, number five, pressing forward requires humility. Requires humility. Look at verse 5 of chapter 3. It says, Beside them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not lift a finger to help their supervisors. The Tekoites. There's always going to be some who consider the work of pressing forward the kingdom as beneath them. We see that here. We see that these people, the nobles, just because they felt that they were noble and a higher class, a higher rank of citizen uh, in, in the city, that they didn't have to listen to the supervisors, that they didn't have to bow to them. They would just watch the wall get built and not lift a finger to do that because they felt it was beneath them. And sadly, we have the same thing today. The same thing today. Uh, people who have that mentality, their grasp of God's faithfulness is incredibly small, as we see here. So their ambition is, is equally small. And the Achilles heel of some churches, right, some churches in America today, is to accommodate those who are uncomfortable with exercising the humility required to press forward the kingdom. So just a handful of people sometimes can dictate what a church does. I'm not saying that's happening here, but I'm saying that it is a problem in the greater context of the American church. People who are uncomfortable are the ones who usually hang up the work of ministry. Certain approaches to ministry, certain approaches to mission are avoided in order to avoid rocking the boat and irritating those who desire to have a church fashioned to their preferences. So friends, listen, pursuing the Great Commission will make you uncomfortable. It will make you uncomfortable. It will require humility on your part because it's not about you. It's about God and serving Him and pressing forward His mission to reach people who are in desperate need of Him. So what about you? What about you today? Will you stoop to serve the Lord? Will you stoop and not be like the Tekoite nobles? Will you be the one to stoop and serve the Lord? Will you consider the Lord Jesus who stooped to wash the feet of his disciples? His last night on earth, we, we see him doing that. And then he was hung from a cross on their behalf. That's what Jesus did. He is our example. Will his mercy and grace motivate you and I to be humble, to humble ourselves and work 
not to earn his favor, but because we have been favored by him. Because he showed us that grace and humility, will we go forward and do the same? This is what we are called to do. The work of gospel ministry is putting others ahead of ourselves and sharing the gospel and pressing forward the kingdom. So we end chapter 3 with the wall under construction. Things are looking good for Nehemiah and for the people of Jerusalem. But as expected, as can always be expected, opposition is about to come knocking on the door. The empire is about to strike back is what we're about to see here, right? Like things are not going to be easy as they move forward. So we press forward the kingdom. Next, we see pushback from the enemy. Now we're in chapter four. So as we move into chapter four, consider with me just three things real quickly that come with the pushback of the enemy. We're going to see that here. So pushback, number one, comes with sneers. Sneers. Look at verse one. It says, when Samballot heard, remember Samballot, Tobiah, and Geshem, the unholy trinity, they're the, the thorn in the side of Nehemiah. It says, when Samballot heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria and said, what are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones back to life from the mounds of rubble? Then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, Indeed, even if a fox climbed up on what they are building, he would break down their stone wall. <laughs> There's a put down for you. Fox can tear it down, right? <laughs> the naysayers don't react well to the progress of Nehemiah, as we can guess. Nehemiah and his crew are, are making strides. And in chapter 2, they might have been amused or confused by Nehemiah's plans. You know, back then we saw that last week. But now they're just downright mad about it. Furious is what it says. They're furious. And they want to do something about it. And so the first tactic is to taunt them, right? It's a, a form of verbal abuse. And it's meant to discourage and dissuade their efforts to belittle them. We see that here. It's the peanut gallery just you know, doing what they do. They're, they're literally making fun of them. And one commentator summarized their comments like this. Sam Ballot belittled their qualities, right? He said they're feeble Jews. He derided their ambitions. He's like, will, there, will, the, will, will, the, will they restore their walls? He mocked their optimism. You know, will they offer sacrifices? Uh, he lampooned their enthusiasm. You know, will they finish it in a day? He undermined their confidence. He said, can they bring these stones back to life? And he magnified their problems, those heaps of rubble, right? Like he did all of these things to discourage them. And then his buddy Tobiah, the Ammonite, jumped in and said, yeah, you're not even doing a good job, right? He's like, he's kind of like that, that little kid on, you ever watched um, A Christmas Story? I'm sure you have. TBS plays it like constantly on Christmas Eve. He's like the, the little short kid and the, and the little hat, you know, looks like a little gangster with the, you know what I'm talking about? Like, you ever, if you've seen that movie, he's kind of like the, the one, yeah, you talk like he is. Like, that's what I imagine Tobiah to be like here. He's like, yeah, what he said, right? Now, before we see Nehemiah's response, I want to consider for a moment, how would we respond? How do we respond to people like that? 
Would we self-justify? Would we fight back? Would we blame shift? Nehemiah and the people respond how they have been responding thus far and how they will continue to respond throughout the book as we're going to see in our study. They trust God and stick to the mission. In one ear and right out the other. It's what I tell my kids all the time. I'm like, just ignore your brother. You don't have to listen to him. But it's so hard. I understand it's very hard. It's incredibly hard. But if you just ignore him, you take away that power, and then he can't annoy you, right? Same concept here. Look at the prayer of verse 4. It says, listen, our God. This is Nehemiah praying. It says, listen, for we are despised. Make their insults return on their own heads and let them be taken as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight because they have angered the builders. So we rebuilt the wall until the entire wall was joined together up to half its height for the people had the will to keep working. So Nehemiah's deep trust is expressed through prayer. We said it last week. He's a man of prayer. He prays constantly. And so he prays three things here. He says, let their taunts turn back on them. Let them experience what we've experienced and don't forgive them, which, you know, that sounds pretty harsh. That's, that's one of the covenant blessings, which they are mocking is forgiveness from God. So why such a, a harsh prayer? It's very pointed. It's not because they hurt Nehemiah's feelings, but because they are mocking God's faithfulness is what these people are doing. And so Nehemiah prays a really bold prayer against them, right? And the trust in God is followed by commitment to the mission. They get back to work. He says, the people had the will to work. We're going to continue to work, and we're going to keep building this thing. And so they succeed in building the wall all the way around Jerusalem. So we see pushback comes with sneers, right? Number two, pushback comes with schemes, there's always going to be schemes, right? Look at verse 7. When Sembalat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, Ammonites, and Ashdodites heard that the repair to the walls of Jerusalem was progressing and that the gaps were being closed, they became furious, right? They're still getting mad. It says they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw it into confusion, right? So they're going to sow discord. They are plotting together. Verse 9, so we prayed to our God, and stationed a guard because of them day and night. So the sneers and taunts are followed by schemes. Schemes to obstruct the progress of the wall. They want to undermine the Jews' efforts, right? To, uh, uh, they, they, they want to undermine them by force and by inciting confusion and division within the ranks, as we see in verse 8. And there's more than one way to undermine kingdom work is what we we see here. One is to simply try and crush it, right? You just try to put down what you think should be put down. Another is to divide the people and undermine their trust in leadership, their trust in God and in one another. And even today, we must be vigilant to protect against all of these in multiple areas of our lives, especially within the context of the local church. And so what we see here, their response in verse 9 is again twofold. They trust God and they stick to the mission. It's what they do. They take precautions. They place a guard. They know what's coming their way, but they don't fret about it. They don't 
you know, fall into the trap of what these schemes are trying to draw them into. They trust God, stick to the mission. They pray and they set a guard. So we see that pushback comes with sneers, it comes with schemes, and then finally it comes with discouragement. So verse 10 says, In Judah it was said, The strength of the laborer fails since there is so much rubble. We will never be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said, They won't realize it until we're among them and can kill them and stop the work. When the Jews who lived nearby arrived, they said to us time and again, Everywhere you turn, they attack us. So things are pretty bleak right now. I mean, imagine seeing the wall of rubble in front of you and you're called to rebuild this thing and it feels so overwhelming. And not only do you have that you're looking at, you also have people who are belittling you, discouraging you, and downright trying to kill you. It's not a good scene. The sneers and the schemes are followed by one of the greatest enemies of kingdom work. And that is discouragement. Discouragement. It's so easy to get discouraged, especially in the work of ministry. And I can remember a few years back when we, you know, we moved here almost 10 years ago to, to plant a church in this city. And four years in, it was one of the most discouraging things I had ever been a part of. And on top of that, I have been diagnosed with a medical condition that was degenerative, right? So it's like, I can't win for losing. What am I supposed to do? We can't do this. Crushing despair and discouragement. But God is so much bigger than that. So look, we see three sources of discouragement here. Number one, from within, verse 10, right? The reality of the task was coming home to those who were laboring. They were like, this is hard. This is ridiculously hard. It, it looks impossible. And most importantly, they began to lose sight of God's providential and sustaining hand here, right? They began to believe they were by themselves. And they see it from within. They see it from their enemies. Verse 11, you know, tired uh, and, and discouraged. The, the, the enemy comes in and, and tries to discourage them with overt threats, saying, hey, we're going to stop you. And then we see also that they have discouragement from their friends. Verse 12, those Jews who had been scattered to the neighboring areas discouraged and distracted the work by trying to persuade the workers to give up, right? Uh, it kind of makes me think, I don't know if you guys are fans of it or not, but the musical Hamilton, right? <laughs> Geniuses, lower your voices. You keep out of trouble, right? Like, and you double your choices, right? They're just like... They're like, hey, just shut up and, and let's just be where we are. Look, we're good, right? We're good. I'm with you. I'm on your side. But this is a fool's errand. Just come back and let's be faithful where God's put us. Right? They're saying there's so many of them. We can't do this. So how do they respond? They persevere is what we see here. They persevere. They don't allow the discouragement to stop them in their tracks. Instead, they continue to push forward even though there is pushback against them. So let's look at number three, persevere. Verses 13 through 23. So their enemies have figured out that their plot has been uncovered, right? This plot to, to you know, disrupt the work. But that doesn't lead Nehemiah to relax. 
He doesn't relax and become complacent, not one bit. You see, again, in this passage, the reoccurring themes of trusting God, sticking to the mission. That's the big idea here. And I think this text shows us two things that are required to persevere as we want to push forward against the enemy to, to see the kingdom go forward. And number one is perseverance requires adjustment. Sometimes you have to pivot. You have to adjust. You have to change your game plan at halftime so that you can be effective. So look at verse 13. Nehemiah says, So I stationed people behind the lowest sections of the wall at the vulnerable areas. I stationed them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. Look down to verse 15. When our enemies heard that we knew their scheme and that God had frustrated it, every one of us returned to his own work on the wall. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half held spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers supported all the people of Judah who were rebuilding the wall. The laborers who carried the loads worked with one hand and held a weapon with the other. Each of the builders had his sword strapped around his waist while he was building, and the trumpeter was beside me. And then verse 21. So we continued the work while half of the men were holding spears from daybreak until the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, let everyone and his servants spend the night inside Jerusalem so that they can stand guard by night and work by day. Verse 23, and I, my brothers, my servants, and the men of the guard with me never took off our clothes. Each carried his weapon even when washing. So imagine that. This guy rolls into town. He's got this compelling vision from God to rebuild the, to rebuild the walls. It's like, yeah, I can do that. I'm going to get my trowel. I'll be out there. You know, we'll bring some water and some sandwiches. We're going to do this. And then all of a sudden, you're called to hold a spear and told, hey, here's a bow and arrow. Shoot somebody if they come towards you. This isn't what they signed up for, right? This is it's like, whoa, this, I just thought we were going to be rebuilding something. It's like this little short-term mission trip here. We're just going to do this thing and get out of here. But no. So you gather from these verses that the people of Jerusalem had gone from zero to 60 pretty quickly here. They were in the thing before they knew they were in the thing, right? Uh, one day they are simply living their life surrounded by this dilapidated uh, city walls when a guy named Nehemiah shows up, convinces them to rebuild. A few short days later, they're embroiled in this hot mess, right? They are like two steps away from construction combat. And so the stakes were pretty high. What started out as a chance to rebuild their city turned into a pretty tense situation. They had to arm themselves, had to go into defense mode. And they figured out quickly that if they were going to accomplish their mission, they had to adjust. They had to adjust their plan. They had to pivot. If they didn't, they were dead in the water. They had to do this. So friends, if we're going to persevere in our mission as a church of pushing forward the kingdom of God, we have to be prepared to adjust. We have to be prepared to make changes on the fly. And that sometimes means sacrificing what is good for what is best. Good things are good, but the best thing is always what we should put priority on. So perseverance requires adjustment. And then secondly, perseverance requires conviction. Look at verse 14. It says, After I made an inspection, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awe-inspiring Lord and fight for your countrymen, your sons and daughters, your wives and homes. And then verse 20, Our God will fight for us. 
So we see Nehemiah, he says, I'm going to stand on conviction in this moment of trouble and trial. I'm going to say, no, God's going to fight this battle. We need to be prepared, but we keep our eyes not on ourselves, but the awe-inspiring Lord, because He is the one who is in control. So the opposition grew fierce. The pressure became intense. Nehemiah relied on that conviction and his calling from God, that God was in total control, worthy of all the glory that was to come from this mission of rebuilding the walls, all the glory that that would bring to God's name, not Nehemiah's. So where is your conviction today? Where's your conviction? Oftentimes when you're engaged in the battle of pushing forward the kingdom, your calling and conviction are the only things you have to remind you of why you are doing what you are doing. When things get hard and things are tiring and things have beaten you down, sometimes all you can go back to is, God asked me to do this. God called me to do this. I have this calling, and God is faithful. He is the awe-inspiring Lord who will fight this battle for me. God and His glory are worth it. So keep your eyes fixed upon Him. So we see that perseverance, it requires conviction. And despite opposition, God showed Himself faithful to His people. We see that. He is the one who brings them out of exile, as we talked about earlier. He's the one who calls them to this covenant faithfulness back to Him. He is the one who fights for them and protects them. He is always faithful. And in light of His faithfulness, we are invited to live and work in His kingdom. It's His kingdom and He is in control. That's what Nehemiah and the people of Israel are doing. They're working in God's kingdom in light of God's faithfulness. That God is going to help them in this mission. But they were not perfect. They were far from perfect as we're going to see as we continue on in the study. In fact, they're never going to be perfect. Over and over again, the story of the Old Testament tells us that God's people would not remain faithful to Him and to His covenant with them. They would constantly need to be called back to faithfulness. And we have the same problem today. So the wall they built might be able to protect them from opposition from the neighboring peoples, but it could not protect them from the rebellion in their own hearts. Because that is what we deal with as sinful human beings. So just as God fought for them in the building of the wall, God fought for them in the keeping of the covenant. And God would send a faithful covenant keeper, one who was perfect, right? His son Jesus, who would live perfectly in relationship with him, in relationship with God the Father. He would live the life of faithfulness that no Jew ever lived, the life that you and I could never live, a life of perfection, a life of holiness. And in Jesus, we see that God is faithful not only to his side of the promise, but to ours as well, because we are incapable of doing this on our own. He is faithful on our behalf through his son Jesus coming to die on the cross for us in our place. So if you're an unbeliever today, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, your response isn't to organize your life better, to try harder, to do more, to be acceptable to God. 
That's not the pathway forward for you. Your pathway forward is to look to the one who is faithful on your behalf. The one who said, I'm going to exchange my perfect righteousness for all of your mess. I'm going to take your place. You look to him and you trust him. He is who makes you acceptable to God. And if you are a believer, if you're here and and you follow Jesus, reflect on the faithfulness today of God. Reflect on how he kept the covenant with you. He has fought for you. He will continue to fight for you. If you're going through a season of of trial and a, a season of discouragement, remember what he has done for you in the past. Know that he is a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God who will fight the battle for you. And in light of his faithfulness, get back to work, pushing forward the kingdom. No matter the pushback that comes, persevere through the power of Jesus. God will help you in that mission. So as we come to this time of response, if you have something that you need to come and lay down today, something you need to come and say, listen, this thing is is what's keeping me from pressing forward, lay it down at his feet today. And if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, Ken and I, or, or anybody here really, would love to tell you more, all that we know about what it means to follow after the one who was perfect, who did take our place. Press forward, even though there's pushback, persevere. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for an example in Scripture from your people of what it means to press forward your kingdom. And God, even though they are imperfect and not the heroes of the story, we know that you are. You are, God. You're the one that's the hero of the entire story. You're the one that we should keep our eyes on, Jesus. And so as we move into this time of response, Lord, I pray that we would do what's necessary to prepare ourselves to push forward your kingdom, to overcome the discouragement from the enemy, to persevere not because we are amazing and awesome, but because you are. So during this time of response, God, I pray that you would move as only you can. Burden hearts, draw us to repentance. And most importantly, lift yourself high so that we can look to you. God, thank you for all that you do. And it's in Jesus' name we ask and pray these things.